I, I think the, you know, the prospect of an extended uh, insurgent campaign is it's extremely likely. And so what has to happen is some kind of negotiated settlement. Ethiopia, a landlocked country with dozens of unique ethnic groups, is nestled in the complex topography of the Horn of Africa and the East African Rift. Tigray, a small region of Ethiopia, borders Eritrea and is home to most of Ethiopia's 7 million ethnic Tigrayans. In November 2020, Tigray's regional government launched a full-scale siege of a key Ethiopian military base. In response, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed ordered a federal offensive against the region setting off a conflict that has killed thousands of Ethiopians and displaced over 2 million people. The situation has since devolved into a full-scale humanitarian crisis, with reports of extrajudicial killings, sexual violence, and the indiscriminate shelling of towns in the Tigray region. It is further complicated by the presence of Eritrean troops, led by autocrat Isaiah Safwerki, who have also been blamed for mass killings and large-scale attacks on civilians. Michelle D. Gavin is Senior Fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She has over 20 years of experience in international affairs in government and nonprofit roles. From 2011 to 2014, she was the United States Ambassador to Botswana and served concurrently as the United States Representative to the Southern African Development Community. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Let us begin by breaking down what is happening just a little bit. What is the conflict in the Tigray region of Ethiopia? How did it acutely start? And what factors led up to the conflict in the first place? Sure. So a little background. Tigray is a a region uh, in Ethiopia that contains roughly 6% of the country's population. But for a couple decades, um, its um, dominant political party, known as the TPLF, Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, was the most powerful political entity in the entire country. And when uh, current Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed rose to power, uh, it represented a real shift in the TPLF's uh, relative position, uh, politically, economically, and militarily uh, in the country. The TPLF lost a lot of access to important levers of power. So that's kind of the backdrop then to the the immediate conflict, which broke out in November of last year when the TPLF attacked uh, federal Ethiopian forces. Now, that, that attack occurred and was um, ostensibly the reason for the conflict, but it's also true that both... Uh, the Ethiopian Defense Forces and the TPLF had been moving people and materiel in the lead up to it. So it looked like conflict was coming. You know, that was sort of the match uh, that that lit the tinder. But it was pretty clear that uh, there were going to be flames sometime soon. If Now, the federal government of Ethiopia will say that the tensions were heightened uh, in part because the TPLF went forward with elections in Tigray. Elections in Ethiopia as a whole had been postponed uh, by the federal government due to the COVID-19 outbreak. 
but that decision was not honored in Tigre. They went forward with an electoral process that, unsurprisingly, the TPLF uh, dominated in. And that uh, led to a kind of a, a dialogue of delegitimization. So you had the TPLF saying that they were legitimately elected and that the government in Addis Ababa was the federal government was sort of uh, illegitimate. It, it was, you know, had its mandate had expired and it, it standing on constitutional quicksand. And you had uh, the federal government saying that the whole electoral exercise in Tigray was illegal and illegitimate. Um, and, and so, you know, the parties were really uh, at, um, at a point where where dialogue was not proceeding, you know, even before that November attack. You talked a little bit about the TPLF, um, and obviously, it gets its name from the region that it comes from. So, talk just a little bit more about the TPLF's namesake, the region where most of the fighting is occurring. So, what and where exactly is the Tigray region, and what is its place in Ethiopia's ethnic-based federal system? Uh, so, Tigray is in the northern part of the country. Uh, it is. Um, as I said, about 6% of the population. Um, and the, the TPLF, uh, again, had been sort of this dominant factor uh, in the government of the country as a whole for, for many decades. It's also highly relevant that you've got Tigray uh, does border Eritrea. And uh, in the brutal Ethiopian-Eritrean war, uh the you know the brunt of the fighting uh, that was experienced by Ethiopians on Ethiopian uh, soil uh, would have been experienced in Tigray. All right, so now that we understand more the dynamics leading up to the conflict and its immediate beginning, what is currently happening um, in the Tigray region as of May 2021? And what does the conflict look like on the ground level? Yes. So it's um, incredibly complicated and tremendously harrowing uh, for civilians on the ground. So what's happened is that the TPLF has sort of, uh, those that were not killed or captured in the initial fighting has kind of uh, dissolved uh, uh, into uh, the countryside to wage essentially a guerrilla campaign of insurgency. Um the Eritrean defense forces are struggling uh, to put an end to that campaign. But meanwhile, you have two other armed actors in the mix. You have uh, defense forces from, from Eritrea who've crossed the border uh, and are operating in Tigray. Uh, and you have militia forces from the Amhara community of Ethiopia who are also operating in Tigray and, in fact, have claimed uh, swaths of land that used to be understood to be Tigrayan land as now part of Amhara. All of these uh, parties have been implicated in accusations of uh, war crimes and atrocities. Uh, most of the accusations uh, appear to uh, kind of be fall at the feet of uh, the two formal militaries in the mix, the Ethiopian Defense Forces and the Eritrean Defense Forces. Uh, 
There are reports of uh, mass use of sexual violence uh, as a weapon of war, uh, targeting of healthcare facilities, uh, you know, a number of of things that uh, clearly constitute war crimes. You've had uh, tens of thousands uh, of Tigrayans flee the country, cross the border into Sudan. Many more are displaced. And right now in Tigray, uh, in parts of Tigray, you have uh, famine conditions. So one of the problems has been not just ongoing conflict, but a lack of humanitarian access. Overlaying all of this is the fact that it's really hard to get concrete information about what's happening in parts of Tigray. There, it, it remains very difficult for independent journalists to get access to the area. There's still a essentially communications blackout in parts of Tigray. And there's a great deal of kind of highly uh, partisan, jingoistic um, misinformation and disinformation on social media coming from various different parties to this conflict, you know, further muddying the waters. Right. And so you talked about the multiple different groups that are involved in this in this conflict. And the Ethiopian army has control of the Tigray region's capital city, and yet armed conflict is ongoing. So what are the current military objectives of the federal government if they already have control of the capital city? Yeah, they have control of the capital city, but they don't have control over the whole area. Um, their, their goals appear to be, you know, to uh, regain control over Ethiopian territory and to uh, decimate sort of what's left of the TPLF so that it cannot uh, present any kind of threat uh, in the future. But, you know, waging a conventional conflict is one thing. Uh, waging a, a counterinsurgency is another. Um, and I don't know uh, anyone uh, familiar with kind of the terrain, the history, the experience of TPLF fighters who believes it would be an, an easy or a quick uh, job to completely eliminate uh, any kind of TPLF insurgency. Ambassador Gavin, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and maybe what role he's played in the conflict so far. Sure. Um, so Abiy Ahmed uh, is a, a complicated figure um, right now. When he uh, rose to power as uh, Ethiopia's prime minister, there was a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm for his leadership. He took a number of steps to open political space in Ethiopia. Um, uh, he freed political prisoners. He made uh, a set of uh, compelling uh, personnel decisions, bringing you know a respected uh, human rights activist in to, to run the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, a, a respected campaigner for civil and political rights to run the Electoral Commission. Right, really, um, it suggested the dawning of an era of political reform in what had been a fairly authoritarian state. And he, in fact, won a Nobel Prize uh, for making peace uh, with Eritrea. He and President Isaiah Safwerki of 
of Eritrea uh, agreed to uh, set aside the tensions uh, of the past, although sort of the substance of that peace deal was always a, a little thin. But over time, um, as uh, Prime Minister Abiy has been confronted with uh, a great deal of civil unrest, various Ethiopian populations agitating for more power from the center uh, or more power relative to their neighbors. Uh, and as his vision for Ethiopia's future, which includes a less prominent role for ethnic federalism, which has kind of been the organizing principle of the state going forward, has, has gotten stronger. There's been uh, more repression uh, a heavier hand uh, used uh, on opponents, um, and there had been kind of a systematic effort to uh, delink the TPLF from uh, levers of power in the Ethiopian system. So what we have now is a prime minister whose vision for Ethiopia is a bit unclear. It's it's hard to see. It's hard to square his rhetoric about um, national unity and a progressive vision with the idea that he's waging war on his own people. Uh, his credibility has been seriously tarnished by making statements uh, to the international community and to his own domestic constituency that don't appear to be true. He had at one point suggested there was no more fighting in Tigray, you know, after a few weeks of the conflict, which was just clearly patently false, he denied the presence of uh, Eritrean troops on Ethiopian ter ter territory for months until he acknowledged they were there. Uh, so his standing um, in the international community has certainly um, taken uh, some very uh, serious damage. So since fighting broke out, Tens of thousands of casualties have been reported in the conflict, and millions have lost access to basic necessities such as food and water. What actions have international organizations taken to alleviate the impacts of this conflict, and have these efforts been blocked by Abiy Ahmed's federal government? So the kind of international uh, apparatus uh, that responds to humanitarian disaster, of course, kicked in uh, in response to this one. Um, and... Uh, you know, you have both the, the kind of usual suspects like the World Food Program um, uh, springing into action. You have uh, neighboring governments like Sudan, uh, where uh, the refugees who uh, initially crossed the border were uh, taken care of uh, and protected. But the issue of, of getting access to the many uh, displaced people and many people in need in, in Tigray has really been a sticking point. And there have been uh, numerous attempts, soft, quiet uh, diplomacy, public statements, urging uh, Prime Minister uh, Abiy and his government to uh, ensure access, uh, but it's still not entirely forthcoming. And in fact, there are disturbing multiple reports of, in some cases, uh, humanitarian assistance uh, being uh, looted, being uh, 
destroyed uh, a concerted and uh, deliberate effort to deny uh, people in Tigray access to this aid. So it's um, extremely alarming. The U.S. uh, has uh, been one of the primary kind of bilateral uh, donors to the effort. And in fact, you saw uh, USAID Administrator Samantha Power uh, just recently, uh, you know, kind of putting out the call, encouraging other countries in the international community to be sure that that they too are uh, contributing uh, to the humanitarian response. But there's sort of two, you know, two sets of problems, making sure the response itself is robust enough, right, that there's enough financing for what's needed, and then making sure it can get where it needs to go, which really is the harder part. So though this conflict is between different groups in Ethiopia, it has implications and effects that have extended beyond its borders. So how has this conflict affected the region and what other groups other than the ones that we've already discussed um, have been involved? Sure. Um, So you're absolutely right. Uh, This conflict is both emblematic of a series of conflicts that are occurring within Ethiopian borders. It's not just Tigray, uh, where there's conflict in Ethiopia. You've got a significant conflict in Benishango Gamuz. You've got conflict in in Afar. You've got conflict in other parts uh, of the country, again, um, springing from these fundamentally political questions, right, about uh, access to power, ethnicity, uh, divisions of land, um, the relationship between the center and the periphery. But uh, in the meantime, the regional uh, situation has become less and less stable. So you have a simmering border conflict now between Ethiopia and Sudan in the Al Fashaga region, which had for a long time, there had been sort of an agreement, essentially, that um, the legal border, uh, everyone would acknowledge, existed, but in practice, uh, it was going to look a little different. Uh, now, this is up for grabs again and could very well tip into interstate conflict. You've got uh, the issue of the Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam, um, which... Uh, has implications for the access to Nile waters of Sudan and Egypt. And there's been saber-rattling rhetoric, uh, particularly coming from the Egyptians, around that. You have the fact that for many years, Ethiopia was an extremely important contributor of peacekeeping troops and kind of a net exporter of uh, security and stability services, particularly in neighboring Somalia. But this uh, crisis at home has uh, lessened the capacity of Ethiopia to play any kind of stabilizing role. And in fact, the relationship now between Ethiopia, Eritrea, and the uh, uh, authorities in Somalia, who are staying long past uh, their expired mandate, uh, has got people really concerned about kind of a new, more uh, authoritarian um, regional uh, development that that could be interested in exporting that model even beyond those countries. So it's a it's a lot of instability in a very uh, strategically important 
uh, part of the continent. So you mentioned that Eritrea has has had a role in the instability that has been going on in the region. So why have Eritrean troops been fighting on the side of the Ethiopian federal government in this conflict? And what has been the role of Eritrean President Isaiah Seforki in this conflict? Well, the why is an interesting question. Um, and, uh, you know, requires uh, sort of getting into Isaiah's head in, in a way that I, I am not qualified to do. Uh, but certainly, I think there are elements of um, sort of revenge of uh, history being very much alive in the region, right? Uh, the the Eritreans uh, are remain incredibly embittered about that Ethiopia Eritrea conflict. Uh, and at that time, the TPLF was the dominant force uh, in Ethiopia and very much seen as the enemy. Um, there was a you know long ago falling out between Eritrea and Ethiopia over this uh, question of an ethnic federalist model in Ethiopia. So there's maybe a, a desire to be right after uh, after so long. There's um, clearly been some looting uh, and you know movement of material from Tigray across the border into Eritrea. So there's some sort of immediate self-interest there. Um, and I think that, you know, it's entirely possible that it's part of a, a bigger and more expansionist vision for Eritrea's role in the region after years of having been fairly isolated by uh, multilateral sanctions that were lifted a few years ago. But it's, you know, understanding exactly what the motivations are uh, is difficult. Understanding the degree to which at this point uh, the Ethiopian government has any control over whether the Eritreans stay or go is an open question, right? Is, is, is it a, a case of... Uh, the Ethiopian government wanting them to leave and then refusing to do so at this stage of the game? Uh, or is it, a, you know, ongoing complicity and collaboration? These, these uh, answers are hazy, and I think they are deliberately kept hazy uh, for the international community. Um, so expanding out to more of an international perspective, um, since, you know, we're from the U.S., we have an, we have an interest in, you know, what the U.S. is, um, stake in this conflict is. So my question is, what does the U.S. have a stake in this conflict? And if so, what has been the p position of the United States government in this conflict so far? Um, well, there are very serious um, stakes for the U.S. Uh, you know, first off, just state collapse in Ethiopia um, means massive humanitarian disaster and also massive refugee flows. If you look at the knock-on effects from something like state collapse in Syria, uh, you're talking about a much bigger population uh, in Ethiopia. And it's, uh, it's very hard to game that out and not see uh, allies and other countries coming under strain, uh, not see that kind of dynamic emboldening uh, uh, kind of the nationalist authoritarian um, cabal <laughs> that exists right now around the world. Uh, but you also have the fact that, you know, the, the kind of Red Sea region is one 
uh, with a number of global and regional powers sort of staking out claim to access to sort of strategic um, uh, sea lanes, uh, in access to important ports, uh, and a kind of free-for-all situation uh, that empowers the transactional uh, type of diplomacy where, you know, money talks and, and norms and rules of the game are out the window, it, it runs directly counter to what the Biden administration has been talking about, about trying to restore and, and reform a rules-based international order. So uh, there's a reason, you know, that so many uh, global powers have a military presence in the Horn of Africa. Uh, and Ethiopia's future is um, an incredibly important sort of bellwether for where the horn is going. Um, and so what has the U.S. done about it? Well, uh, it it's unfortunate, right, that this crisis broke out basically at a moment of transition for the United States government. So, so we got off in some ways to a slow start uh, just because of the nature of our own electoral calendar. But you have had uh, statements um, expressing concern, condemning atrocities, calling for air train withdrawal at very high levels in the United States. You've had uh, you know phone calls and engagement at the highest levels, presumably reiterating these messages. Um, you've had Linda Thomas-Greenfield at the UN uh, trying to get this issue onto the Security Council agenda, um, uh, often being uh, blocked by other council members, but at least finally uh, succeeding in securing a, a statement, not the strongest statement, but a beginning of a, a united international voice on this. You've also so, so sort of started with statements, and then you had uh, the Biden administration deploying Senator Chris Coons on a, a mission with a message from the president you know, to Ethiopia to try and uh, ramp up the diplomacy. Uh, you've recently had the appointment of Jeff Feltman, who's now the special envoy for the Horn of Africa, a brand new position. Uh, he is uh, an incredibly skilled diplomat with a background both in uh, multilateral work at the UN, but also uh, a lot of work in the Middle East. So he knows the Gulf factors that are so important uh, to this equation. And then just this week, you had the rollout of um, some targeted sanctions, uh, a visa ban on those who are continuing to fuel this conflict. So you've seen kind of a steady ramp up in the, the tools at the disposal of the Biden administration to express concern and try and influence decision makers on the ground. Ambassador Gavin, I want to ask you about kind of the future of the conflict looking forward. Um, one aspect of this that I, I think would be interesting for our listeners is that Ethiopia is, has, in the past three, four years, has been going through a real transition towards democracy that it really hasn't seen in um, decades. I'm wondering how this conflict has kind of impacted that transition towards a more free democracy. Um, and what the future of Ethiop Ethiopian democracy might look like, um, given the current state of the crisis? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I think we're all wondering. Um, you know, as I said, that kind of early progress 
on a reform agenda has definitely stalled. Ethiopia is slated to hold elections next month. Um, those elections, uh, uh, given the nature of the pre-election conditions, right, are going to be uh, unquestionably problematic. There won't be any elections at all in Tigray. Um, some other parts of the country will have uh, their polling delayed. There are uh, multiple sections of the country under martial law, and the idea is that they're going to go forward with an electoral process uh, that way. You've got some uh, important opposition parties boycotting the process. Uh, you've had a lot of trouble with uh, voter registration, which is not that surprising in light of how much um, communal conflict exists in Ethiopia right now. And I think that, you know, even beyond the elections, uh, the kind of crackdown on independent journalism, uh, covering uh, the, the crisis in Tigray, and just the willingness to turn uh, the military might of the state against uh, Ethiopian civilians in a given part of the country, you know, all of this uh, certainly calls into question the uh, sincerity and viability of a kind of democratic reform agenda. Yeah, that it's a very tragic situation, I have to say. Um, and lastly, Ambassador Gavin, could you tell us how do you think this conflict might play out from here? What is there a resolution in sight? And if so, what might that look like? So I do not think that there is a military uh, solution to this conflict right now. I, I think the you know the prospect of an extended uh, insurgent campaign is it's extremely likely, and so what has to happen is some kind of negotiated settlement. There needs to be a, a wholesale ceasefire, and then a set of political negotiations um, that include you know, a range of stakeholders in Ethiopia, given how much political contestation exists on the ground and how unclear the rules of the game are. Now, it may be very difficult to include the TPLF in that process. The, the Ethiopian government considers them a terrorist organization, but uh, perhaps, you know, certainly in other peace processes, there have been uh, other channels uh, to to work with, uh, to, to find uh, a way forward with armed actors. But the idea that there's going to be a purely military solution uh, that will bring a sustainable peace, uh, I think is, um, uh, I think it's wishful thinking. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ambassador Gavin. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. <laughs>